Watching children play is either going to make you smile or it's going to drive you absolutely bananas. There's almost no in between. You know, sometimes watching children play brings a great smile to your face because they're just carefree. They just enjoy themselves. If the weather's pretty, they're just outside. The wind's blowing through their face. They're just smiling. and have a care in the world. It's a wonderful thing to watch. And other times, it can drive you absolutely nuts. And sometimes it's because the kids just don't get along and they're picking at each other. We understand that. But that doesn't even bother me so much as when I actually decide, you know what, I'm going to join this game the kids are playing, whatever it is, tag or whatever it is. I'm going to actually join in. And I, I try to join in the game, but nobody has any idea what the rules are. That tree was base until somebody decided it was actually this car, unless you're wearing red, and in which case you've got to know the secret password that nobody actually knows, and somebody actually changes it if your birthday falls on a Tuesday. It's unbelievable. And I don't know how children can even follow what's actually going on. Jesus very often used very common things to teach very important lessons. We call them parables. The word parable literally means to cast alongside of or to throw alongside of. And the idea simply is that there's an earthly thing, an earthly account, maybe someone going out to sow seed, for example, and Jesus would cast alongside of that a spiritual application. And so you've heard the word parable defined as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning or a spiritual meaning. That's exactly what the word means. And in one account, Jesus was even able to take the simple fact that children like to play and make a powerful application for those of his day out of that point. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 7. And we're going to think about some verses that are found near the end of that that chapter in Luke chapter 7. And while you're turning there, let me say this. I don't know how many times I've read through the Bible, read through the New Testament, and I've read the words found in verses 31 through 35. I suppose I've read this little parable 20, 30, 40 times or more. I don't have any idea how many times I've read it. But for some reason, I had never really focused on until a few months ago. I was reading a book that had to do with simply some of the things that Jesus taught. And the writer of that book said that he had, in his own personal library, four volumes that dealt with different parables that Jesus told. And in none of those four volumes was this little parable even mentioned once. And so I began to look through some things I have on my shelf. I have Wayne Jackson's New Testament commentary. Now, it's a a survey-style commentary. In other words, it's not talking about every verse of the Bible, just some thoughts from here and there throughout the entire New Testament. And the grand total number of words that Brother Wayne Jackson shares about this parable is zero, none. So I got down a, a, a commentary that many of you are familiar with, Burton Kaufman's commentary. He wrote an entire commentary on the book of Luke, and I thought, there's going to be 30 pages, surely, on this parable. It was less than one. And some of you are thinking, well, now, wait a minute. If this guy, I don't know, and Wayne Jackson and Burton Kaufman didn't say much about it, why are we getting ready to spend 30 minutes talking about this parable that nobody else seems to want to write very much about? It's very simply because these words, though they're not found at the beginning of Matthew or the beginning of Luke or the beginning of John, share with us a very powerful introduction to what we're doing on Sunday mornings this year. On Sunday mornings this year, of course, under our theme, One Word, the Word of Christ, we're thinking about what we're calling those red letters, the words of Jesus, 
And this particular parable sets up for us the transition from John, the one who prepared the way for Jesus, to Jesus himself, and also how some of the people reacted to Jesus' teaching. And so even though it's not found at the beginning of the accounts of the gospel, I wanted to begin with this particular account, this particular parable this morning. We're calling our lesson this morning Child's Play. Because Jesus takes something very well known to everyone, not just those around him, but even us today. And he makes a powerful point for us. And and this morning what we're going to do is two things. We're going to study the the passage itself. We're going to do it under four points. We're going to think about the context. Then we're going to think about the picture of the children. Then we're going to think about the comparison that Jesus made. And we're going to notice the conclusion that he gave in this account. And having then studied the text, we're going to take a few moments at the end of our time and and ask, is there any application for us all of these years later from this particular parable? But notice it with me, first of all. We're going to think about the context. Anytime you study the Bible, context matters. Where something falls in the Bible makes a difference. And that is the case for certain when you study this parable. We're not going to read all the verses of Luke chapter 7, but if you're open to that text, just glance back up in your Bible or maybe turn back one page and just kind of let your eyes flow through the the chapter a little bit. And you're going to see that earlier in Luke chapter 7, Jesus had already healed a centurion's servant. Later in the chapter, he had raised a widow's son who was dead in a little village called Nain. Those things had happened earlier in Luke chapter 7, and you may be familiar with those particular accounts. But while that is going on, while Jesus is doing all of these amazing things, John, the one who had prepared the way for Jesus, the one who had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that John is in prison. John had preached the truth. He had preached the truth boldly, even before Herod. And now he finds himself in prison for his boldness. And we know John as that faithful one. And so we can begin to wonder, how could this happen? But John begins to to doubt. And so, if you're in Luke 7, and you look back up at verse 19, you're going to see that John sends two of his followers, two of his disciples, to Jesus to ask the question, Are you the one? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Here is John, the one who had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now he's sending messengers to Jesus, basically to say, Was I telling the truth? Are you really the one? He's doubting due to his circumstances. Here John was, he had taught the truth, and now he's seemingly just rotting away in prison. That can't be right. And you remember that Jesus tells those two followers, you go back to John and you tell him the things you've seen and heard. The blind see, the the lame walk, the poor, having the gospel preached to them. In other words, all of those things prophesied about the coming one, about the Messiah in the Old Testament, they're all coming true. I really am the one. You, You go tell John that. And after those disciples leave and go back towards John, Jesus then turns to the people around him and he begins to tell them about John. And how John had so well prepared the way for what Jesus was now doing. In fact, maybe the highest words of praise found for any person in Scripture are found in this context. If you look at verse 28, Jesus says about John, I tell you, among those born of women... Now pause there for a second. I think that would be just about everybody, don't you? Of those born of women. I tell you, of those born among women, none is greater than John. But then Jesus adds these words... Yet, or but, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, greater than John. 
That's not to take anything away from John. But all Jesus is saying is, he's hinting at the fact that John will never be a part of that kingdom that was to come, the church. John would die before that came into existence. And so you and I know blessings because we are part of the church that John never knew. As wonderful as a person as John was, we know blessings that he simply did not know, did not experience because of the time in which he lived. Now, it's at this point that the Holy Spirit sort of stops Luke's pen for a second and basically says, stop writing what Jesus said, and I want you to to interject an inspired commentary. Notice what is written in Luke 7, verses 29 and 30. When all the people heard this about John, And the tax collectors too, they declared God just or righteous, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. That's the key phrase. Not having been baptized by him, by John. Now that helps us fill in some of the backstory as far as how the people heard John or how they didn't. But it also leads us to the words that Jesus is getting ready to say because some would listen to him And some wouldn't. That little inspired commentary in verses 29 and 30 holds the key to this parable. And the key phrase in red on the screens is, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. That, in a nutshell, is the context. And so with that, look at the actual parable itself and notice the children. Jesus makes it very clear he's making a comparison. To what shall I compare this generation? And he begins to make the comparison in verse 32. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Now, like I said, I've read that I don't know how many times over the years and never really thought about it until a few months ago and then, and then obviously preparing for this lesson. The picture that Jesus is showing here is children doing something that doesn't seem right. Did you notice they're not playing? We might expect Jesus to say, There are children playing in the marketplace. That's not what's going on here. They're sitting in the marketplace, and they're simply calling out to one another. Let's put that in today's terms for a second. Here in a few minutes, we'll finish our worship service, and we're blessed here at Ninth Avenue to have children, and lots of children, and they like to play and do various things following services, and we don't like them to you know, run and hurt people or destroy things. We also understand that kids are going to be kids at times. But maybe it's after services, and we see a child just sitting in a seat doing nothing. It kind of catches your eye, doesn't you? Doesn't it? Because something's just not right about that. Maybe he's not feeling well. Maybe he got in trouble. (laughs) Maybe he did actually run over somebody and he has to sit in the seat. But something's just not right. And that's what these children in the marketplace were doing in Jesus' parable. They're just sitting there. Something's not right. And beyond that, the children are are calling out to each other and they're kind of, frankly, they're kind of being jerks. And we've all seen kids do this, pout and moan and complain. And when you start asking why that's going on, They start talking like children. I wanted to play that game, but she didn't want to. That's exactly what's going on in this parable. Does that sound familiar? Every parent's going, "Uh uh-huh, just last night. right? That's that's exactly what we totally understand. These kids are are picking at each other, one another. They're pouting, even though they tried to set the rules of the game. You know, today, little children might play things like house or school or church. These children simply were playing wedding and funeral. 
They were going to play a flute. Maybe not even really, really a flute. Maybe someone was just going to whistle and act like it was a flute. And, and the other kids were going to dance around in a happy celebration like a wedding, which, by the way, in that day and time happened in public. The entire city would see the wedding procession. They would see the people walking by, playing the music and dancing and all these things that had to do with a wedding. So they were simply going to mimic what they had seen all these years playing a wedding. But somebody didn't want to do that. And so... Now, I find this part to be kind of weird, but they go to the other extreme, they decide to play a funeral. Now, when I was about five, six years old, we lived in southern Illinois at the time, and one of my best friends lived in the same neighborhood as us, just you know, maybe a quarter of a mile away. His dad owned the local funeral home. And they had the funeral home in the upstairs part of the house. Yeah. The bottom part of the house was their house. Patty Fortenberry is actually shaking her head no already. I'm not even through the story yet. We played hide and seek in the casket room. You talk about some good places to hide in the dark now, because who's going to look in that casket, right? But we didn't play funeral. We didn't stand up there and actually have a funeral. We just decided that was a good place to play hide and seek. These kids decided to play funeral. We wanted to sing a dirge and you didn't want to go along with that either. Remember earlier in Luke 7 that Jesus had raised that widow's son at Nain? Remember where he found this going on? It was right in the middle of the city. There was a funeral procession going on. They would carry what we would call the, the casket. They would call the buyer through the community. The children had seen this their whole lives. People walking through town, carrying the casket, and singing these mournful songs. They simply said, well, let's play that game. But, of course, somebody didn't want to do that either. And so now they're just sitting in the marketplace pouting, calling to one another, I want to play this game, you didn't want to play it, I want to play this game, you didn't want to play it. And we can see that in our mind's eye because we've seen children do exactly the same thing. But Jesus is not just telling a story about children's play habits. Remember he had said, to what shall I compare this generation? That's the children. So notice now the comparison that he had in mind. Notice the little word that opens verse 33 is the word for, F-O-R. Why would Jesus compare that generation around him with the playing habits of children? Well, he's getting ready to explain. And so he said in verses 33 and 34, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, before we dive into this comparison, I want to sort of step back for a second and take a moment here to do something that's going to help us in several of our sermons throughout this year because since we're studying the words of Jesus on Sunday mornings, not every Sunday morning is going to be a parable, but there's going to be a few of them. And I want to share with you something as we think about parables. And it's simply a rule of thumb for interpreting parables. When you see these parables, how are we supposed to then interpret them into our lives? I prefer to put it this way. We need to get the main point and be careful with the details. I think that's how we interpret the parables of Jesus. We get the main point. Every parable that Jesus told, the parable of the sower, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and and this one in Luke 7, and on and on and on it goes, all of them have one main overarching point. That we need to make sure we understand and don't argue about. 
However, when it comes to the details of the particular parables, unless the text itself tells us what they mean, we'd be somewhat careful. For example, the parable of the sower, Jesus himself said, it's not just four different kinds of soil, but here's what they represent. This one represents this, this. But if he didn't tell us that, we could guess all day long and surmise all day long and suppose all day long and maybe not really come to an agreement. What does that have anything to do with Luke chapter 7? Jesus was not saying that John was always like a funeral dirge and that Jesus himself was always like a wedding celebration. I say that because in preparing for this lesson, I came across a couple of writers who seemed to indicate that, that they took this to the extreme level, that Jesus was saying this was always the case, that John was always down and difficult, and Jesus was always exciting. Folks, this very parable disproves that. Jesus is not saying something really positive here. When we get to the conclusion, we're going to point that out. He's saying something difficult. Instead, by comparison, John was more what we might call hellfire and brimstone than Jesus was by comparison. But was it always true? No. But John was not the one, it would seem, that always slapped people on the back and yucked it up with folks. In fact, if you wanted to hear John preach, you had to go out to the wilderness just to hear him preach. He wasn't a socialite. And Jesus says, you didn't like that. So then the Son of Man, Jesus, comes along, and one of the things that drew people to him then that draws people to him now is that he could be around anybody. It's amazing to see the the, the absolute range of people that Jesus spent time around and was comfortable around. He he didn't always agree with what they were doing, but he could be in their presence. He, He could be as comfortable around the extremely poor as he could with the rich. He could interact with and try to help out of their sins people like harlots and drunkards just as much as he could be around those who are religious. But he preached the truth, and he didn't like that either. Why? Well, that's found back up in that verse we mentioned a few moments ago in verse 30, the part we had in red a few minutes ago on the screens. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. In studying this lesson, I came across a paragraph I want to share with you. Talking about that line, Gary Beauchamp said this. He said, Under all of this camouflage and subterfuge of not wanting to participate, the truth of the matter is that they have rejected the counsel of God. They did not want to participate. They didn't want to play. They didn't want to walk after John. They didn't want to be his disciple. They didn't want to heed the message of Christ. So now you're beginning to see the comparison that Jesus is making. He's calling these religious leaders of his day children because in their mind they had already made up, if you please, which games they were going to play and which they weren't. Ever known a child to act that way? Every one of us has. John told them some things that they didn't like. They were going to have to change. And he told them in kind of a harsh manner, kind of a difficult manner, and they didn't like that and even began to call him names just like children do he has a demon jesus comes along and he's a little more of a social he he can be interacting with you and be among you and and eat with you and those sorts of things but he tells you something that you don't like and so what do you do you start calling him names too he's a drunkard he's a glutton just like children do the fact of the matter is what jesus is basically telling them is you've forgotten to grow up You've forgotten to grow up. And so with that powerful comparison in mind, then Jesus adds a conclusion. The last words that Jesus says in this context are very brief, 
But they summarize the, the parable very well. Notice verse 35. He very simply says, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. If you have one of the handouts, you'll notice I gave you a different uh, paraphrase of that verse. The New Living Bible paraphrases the verse, but I think gives us the meaning very well as it puts it this way. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. Now, what, what's Jesus saying? In the context, he's saying that there were some who were wise because they were willing to listen to John and to Jesus, despite their different personalities. Both taught the wisdom of God, and so I'm going to listen to John, and then I'm going to listen to Jesus. And so they were shown to be wise by the way their life turned out. It's simply another way of wording the very famous teaching, by their fruits you will know them. You know, pouty children may get their way for a little while, but after some time, if something doesn't change, nobody wants to play with them. They seem arrogant, they seem difficult to get along with all the time, and so uh, other kids find children who are more fun, but also who are more fair. And Jesus is pointing out that these Pharisees, folks, they could, they could continue in their way, and that was fine, that was their choice, but over time, people would not want to be around them because their way would be shown to be unwise. While the way of Jesus, foreshadowed by the way of John, would be shown to be wise. By their fruits, you will know them. Wisdom is known by her children. After a while, people don't want to be around a Pharisee because they show themselves to be nothing more than pouty little kids in a grown-up's body. Now we look at that parable and we think, that had to do with John paving the way for Jesus and sort of this transition to now Jesus being, if you please, at center stage, and how some listened and some didn't. Is there any possible application that we can make in 2017 from that text for our lives? There are a lot we can make, but I want to share with you two. As I was putting this lesson together, hit me very hard and made me truly think. One is one I hope you noticed all along as we've gone through the, especially the comparison part of the lesson. And that is this. What's my reaction when I see a command of God that goes against the way I've been living or thinking? I read through the New Testament, I see something in the New Testament that says, I need to change. Just like John looked at those around him and said, you need to repent. Just as Jesus looked at those around him and said, you need to repent. The choice then is mine, not just to obey or not obey, but how I'm going to react to even hearing that or reading that. Some of us react like a pouty little child. I don't want to change. That's not the game I want to play. Others of us, are a willing disciple. Not to say it's always easy, but we've matured enough to where we see that if the Bible says this is the way I need to live, or this is the attitude I need to have, then I'm willing to change and not pout about it. Not be a, a five-year-old about it, but be a grown-up about it. I want to be more like those who are mentioned in verse 29, those who declared God just, declared God righteous. And there's one more application that hits way too close to home more often than I might want to admit. And I say that because I actually had this lesson done and ready to preach and went back through the passage again and realized I've got to make this point of application as well. I want you to take note of the fact that only those in this parable who are being called out or condemned are compared to children. But further than that, they're not just compared to being children. They're compared to children who want to pretend. They're compared to pouty kids. But 
kids who are pouting because they want to pretend like grown-ups. They want to pretend to be adults. They want to pretend to be at the wedding, pretend to be at the funeral, and so on and so forth. What's my point? Jesus is calling these Pharisees who think they have it all together pretenders. He's saying they're hypocrites even though he doesn't use that word here. And so the application is, could I, like the Pharisees, be doing nothing more than playing religion on the outside while I'm pouting on the inside? Folks, that hits way too close to home sometimes. Way too close to home. I need to take a hard look at my life. Here I am trying to follow the word of God, or at least telling people that I am. But this particular text shows me that I can have the the veneer, the outer picture of a religious person, but inwardly I can be pushing away at the commandments of God all day long. And I'm pretending my way through life, if that's the way I act. Folks, we can all look the part. We can all sing the right songs like Brother John has led us in this morning. We can quote a lot of verses. We can amen at just the right points in the sermon. We can drop large checks in the collection plate every single Sunday morning. But if we are not following and loving the commandments of God, God knows that. And he says, you're nothing more than a pouty little child. That hurts to hear. But, oh, it can be true. I've preached sermons before where I've said some things were hard to hear and watched grown people literally do this. Folks, I'd expect that of somebody who was four, not a grown-up. I've known members of the church who somebody said something to them And instead of going to that person and working it out, they text somebody else. I'd expect that of a 10-year-old, not a grown-up. I've known people who, the elders make some decision, it bothers me, so who do they come to? The preacher. I don't mind trying to help. Go to them. What Jesus is saying is we can look the part all day long and it's about time for a lot of us to grow up. Folks, that hurts. But not every word Jesus said was all happy all the time. Remember some who stood there hearing Jesus say these words were the very ones he was talking about. And I'm saying these things at the end of the lesson not because I'm picking on a handful of people, but because, as I said, this lesson was done, and if you, if you please, raid a ship, <laughs> about two weeks ago until I reread the parable and I thought, Adam, you need that point of application for yourself. Because I can put on the suit and tie, and I can make all my points start with the same letter, <laughs> and I can quote nearly every song in the songbook. But there are some commands in the Bible that when I read them, I go, I don't want to play that game. I don't want to do that. And it's time this guy grows up. We've got some men in this room who are doing things on their computers when nobody else is around that we might not like. We might figure, you know, a 13 or 14 or 15-year-old might be doing those things. 
men, it's time to grow up. We've got some ladies who I've literally heard laugh about the fact that they just gossip a little bit. I would expect that of teenagers. Ladies, it's time to grow up. God does not expect us to be childish. He expects us to have a childlikeness. And there's a big time difference. Childlikeness is innocence. Childishness is the person who needs to grow up. I know I don't usually preach this way, but I promise you with everything that's in me that I'm preaching to this guy first. And if something I've said hits you, that's just a bonus. But maybe this morning it touches you enough that you're willing to say, you know what? I need to grow up. And I need help doing it. I I need the prayers of the church to help me to step forward and to continue to mature in my faith because right now I'm not acting like I should. I love everyone in this room and I want to see us grow together as we grow closer to God. And so this morning, if you're not a Christian, or if you as a Christian need to say that I need to mature my faith and to grow my faith, I need forgiveness, I need help, whatever your need is, we invite you to come and we stand and sing to encourage you.